From Goldman Sachs Research, this is Allison Nathan. Welcome to Top of Mind, a podcast that explores macroeconomic issues on the minds of our clients. In this episode, we're taking a look at geopolitical risks around the world and their impact on the global economy and markets. As recession fears loom, some of these geopolitical risks are fueling growth worries. The major example of this is, of course, the ongoing U.S.-China trade war, a topic we've explored in several recent episodes. On the other hand, one of the largest geopolitical shocks in recent memory, namely the unprecedented attack on Saudi Arabia's oil infrastructure that resulted in the biggest daily disruption in oil supplies in history, has gone almost unnoticed by markets. That's despite the fact that oil shocks historically have been one of the most common causes of recession. And the already substantial disorder in the Middle East only looks set to worsen, as tensions have intensified in many parts of the region, at the same time that the United States seems to be walking away from commitments that have helped shore up regional stability. Whether the market's response to recent developments in the Middle East is warranted, and just how vulnerable the economy and markets are to these and other geopolitical shocks is top of mind. To understand why the market's response to the recent oil disruption was so muted, I first turned to Goldman Sachs's head of energy research, Damien Quervelin. He explains that despite the historically large size of the disruption, the oil market is much better positioned to deal with supply outages today than in the past. That's true even relative to a year ago, when the market was facing another big disruption, the loss of Iranian oil supplies, after the U.S. walked out of the 2015 nuclear deal and imposed sanctions on Iran. The Saudi disruption was roughly twice the size, but had a much smaller price impact. Here's why. Recently, there were attacks on Saudi Arabian oil infrastructure. How big was this disruption in historical context? It was huge. It is the single largest production disruption in the oil market in level terms at 5.7 million barrels per day. In percent terms, it's just shy of the invasion of Kuwait by Iraq in the 1990s. So if it was the largest disruption ever, why haven't we seen markets responding more strongly? First, Saudi has been able to provide a timeline on a recovery that is relatively quick. Second, we went through this exercise last year around the Iranian disruption, so we better knew the adjustment mechanism. And third, in a backdrop of weaker oil demand and relatively high inventories, we had immediate buffers to cope with such a large shock. So there are three elements to that lackluster response. The duration of the outage, the demand backdrop, and what we learned last year when we went through the same exercise. So duration is key, right? Here we're talking about a disruption that can last a matter of weeks, at most maybe a month, month and a half. Last year, we were facing a complete loss of Iranian export for the foreseeable future. So an open-ended disruption of 3 million barrels per day, which over six months is a huge amount of volume lost. So that's why the price action ultimately last year was more dramatic. Second, last year, through the summer at least, the macro backdrop was still relatively strong. So losing production in the face of a relatively healthy global economy means prices have a lot more to do to balance the system. Today, the backdrop is very different. There 
concerns about recession. Oil demand hasn't been good this year. And so again, the pull from the demand side is much smaller. Now, third is what we learned last year, right? We definitely, in hindsight, overshot in terms of price action. And we got at around $80 brand prices, decent demand destruction, and a large shale response. In the end, well in excess of what was needed. Last year, we pretty much priced much more extreme outcome that today we know we don't have to go to unless this disruption is one of many to follow. More broadly, Damien explains that U.S. shale oil production, which has increased dramatically in the last decade and even within the last five years, has reduced the economy's vulnerability to oil outages and has substantially changed the way we look at oil supplies globally. We used to think about oil supply disruptions as being one of the major causes of recessions historically. What's changed from a production and supply standpoint that's put us in a more comfortable position today? We now have a source of supply, shale, which is significant in scale, which is short cycle, and which can respond to prices relatively quickly. And so instead of the old framework of sustained outages creating significant price spikes to get demand to correct the imbalance, now we have a supply factor, which on a three to four month horizon can create a significant increase in production and help balance a deficit. So this is new, right? This is what shale creates. Now, we shouldn't overstate the ability of shale to make up for shortages, right? You still have logistical constraints. And increasingly, from a U.S. producer perspective, investors which are not necessarily rewarding growth at all costs. And so to some extent, in 2019, the supply response of shale producers to a same price move would be smaller than 2018 or even 2017. So it's not infinite. It takes some time. But again, it is different than anything the oil market has had over the previous decade to cope with either outages or, in fact, weak demand. But while global oil supplies are more resilient today, Damien also thinks they're more vulnerable to disruption than we ever imagined. I think after this attack, the risk of another disruption is materially higher than perceived over the last six months. Right? Last year, we were simply solving for Iran going offline, which you knew would happen. It was a matter of timeline. Now, another 5 million barrels per day disruption is conceivable in a matter of months. The probability of that risk is much higher than it was last year. We've learned that the Saudi assets are more vulnerable than ever expected. And second, the catalyst for the attack is still there. There has been no resolution to the Iranian situation in the Middle East, and there stands being that if they can't export, neither should their neighbors, still potentially could lead to another large disruption going forward. So just how likely is another attack that further disrupts global oil supplies? We turn to Richard Nephew, a professor at Columbia and former U.S. lead sanctions negotiator for the Iran nuclear deal, to better understand the motivations of Iran, who the U.S. government alleges was behind the recent attack. He thinks additional attacks may be likely if the rapid contraction of Iran's economy in the face of U.S. sanctions doesn't improve, especially given the U.S.'s limited response to the latest provocation, which he thinks may embolden them. The Iranians have stated from moment one that their intention is to impose costs on the United States, our partners, both in the region and outside. And one of their best ways of doing that is by going after energy supplies that are going through their neck of the woods. And I think we should absolutely expect that that will be part of this. And I think that the Iranians, to some extent, might see some real benefits in what they've done. 
worth noting, they carried out this attack in a way that's at least superficially deniable. They did have an impact on the price of oil, albeit temporary, as the markets look to come down. It might come back up depending on how Saudi restoration efforts are affected. And best of all worlds, they didn't get attacked in return. The United States issued some threats, but all it did was impose some pretty weak sanctions and now is kind of looking and assessing the situation. So from an Iranian perspective, this was all benefit and very little cost thus far. Do you think it was a mistake for the U.S. not to respond more strongly to the recent attacks? My overall position is that the United States should seek negotiations with Iran to address longstanding concerns, but to reduce the tensions, to get us back into the nuclear agreement, and to get back to a more diplomatic approach to addressing our broader regional concerns with the Iranians on missiles and Yemen and Syria and so forth. So from that standpoint, obviously, I'm happy that we're not in a shooting war with the Iranians right now. But I think from the standpoint of where U.S. policy is today, and the low likelihood that we're going to re-enter into a constructive diplomatic approach, I think what the Trump administration is doing is a complete disaster, and that we should react more forcefully when things like a Saudi oil infrastructure platform that is responsible for millions of barrels of oil a day, which is vital to the energy security of the planet, are attacked. And when we have been the guarantor of security and stability in the region for all these years, I think that the Iranians take exactly the wrong message from that, which is the Trump administration is weak and has no intention of defending U.S. interests like these, which potentially invites additional attacks. I think the Saudis take the wrong perspective from this, which is that they will be abandoned by the United States. And so they need to sort out their own problems, which could go in a number of different directions. I think the Israelis take the exact same signal. And I think other adversaries around the world take the same signal from the United States that we are unprepared to support longstanding interests that we've stated. So from that standpoint, I think if you're going to engage in this sort of policy, then you have to engage in this sort of policy. You have to take the kinds of very difficult, onerous decisions that come along with that. If I had been in the White House, I would have advised a limited retaliatory strike on the sites that are identified as being involved with either the supply of the drones or cruise missiles to whomever, in fact, use them or against the sites themselves in southwestern Iran. And that's the kind of direct response that may at least contribute to reestablishing deterrence and therefore avoiding us running down a much worse path in the future. That said, Nephew doesn't think the U.S. is likely to engage in a military conflict with Iran, at least not intentionally. I think that the likelihood the president wakes up and says, it's time to go to war with Iran, let's go, is probably zero, right? I don't think this president wants another war in the Middle East. He's been pretty clear about that. It's one of the few positions that he's stuck with from the get-go, and I don't see him changing that anytime soon. But that's actually not terribly comforting because I think that the highest risk of conflict we've got with Iran at this point is a mistake. It's an Iranian provocation that goes awry. They decide to fly a drone too close to a U.S. aircraft carrier and it crashes into a U.S. aircraft carrier. An Iranian small boat gets too close to a U.S. ship that's operating in the Straits of Hormuz and gets fired upon by the U.S. Navy. You can imagine a hundred different variants of those two scenarios in which the coincidence of our forces and Iranian forces in the Persian Gulf creates a very real likelihood of a military clash. 
To put this all into broader perspective, I turn to Richard Haas, the president of the Council on Foreign Relations. He started by explaining why the Middle East remained so crucial within the geopolitical landscape despite reduced dependence on Middle Eastern oil. The Middle East still matters for lots of reasons, including but not limited to energy resources. The United States is less directly dependent upon the region's oil, but there's a difference between energy self-sufficiency and energy independence. And we've achieved self-sufficiency, but not independence. Everything because of the mix of oil, different kinds of oil, and our refineries. But also, more importantly, our economic health is tied to the economic health of the world, and the economic health of the world is tied to access to energy. So we are still affected by the stability of energy supplies in the region. And the Middle East matters also because it's a locale of many of the world's terrorists. It's a potential theater of nuclear proliferation. It's a play in the United States, a special interest because of Israel and our historic relationship there. There's also any number of humanitarian interests. It's also a place where Increasingly, the United States, Russia, to a lesser extent, China, all come into contact with each other. And obviously, you have any number of middle powers, such as Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Israel, Egypt, in close proximity. So we've learned over the decades that what happens in the Middle East isn't simply of local importance. It has been the least stable and least successful part of the world now for decades. It's not at all clear that will change anytime soon. And when things go badly there, the consequences tend to spill over beyond the region. To that end, Haas's main concern is around the current thrust of American foreign policy, which he views as reducing the U.S. footprint in the Middle East, something he argues actually began under the Obama administration and is likely to continue no matter what happens with the U.S. election next year. Most recently, you had what you might have described as the overreach of the Iraq War in 2003, and then what many would describe as the underreach, for the most part, of the Obama administration. And this administration has in many ways reinforced the trend of the Obama administration, a reluctance to either get involved or stay involved in the region. And we've seen it in this administration, this reluctance, involves military force. There's been a consistent reluctance to use it or to leave it in the region. There's also been a reluctance to practice diplomacy in the case, say, of the Israeli-Palestinian issue or in the case of Yemen. To call it a post-American Middle East is a bit dramatic. The United States is still involved, but our degree of influence, our degree of presence is considerably less than it was. So there's elements now of a post-American Middle East that are emerging, and it's not simply because Donald Trump, again, it began under Barack Obama, and if one reads what most of the Democratic candidates are saying, it's likely to continue under a Democratic president if there is one. A lot of the Democrats have talked about reducing or withdrawing American forces from Syria, some from Iraq, some from Afghanistan. So a lot of them are going to reinforce these perceptions that the United States is losing interest in this part of the world or is no longer willing to pay the price to have influence. But this isn't all about the U.S. Haas sees U.S. disengagement from the Middle East as part of a larger trend. 
what we're seeing is essentially a pattern where the United States is doing less. But it's not so much killed by other major powers, though Russia's doing a little bit more as it is by locals. Could by Iran, by the Saudis, by the Israelis, by the Turks, and by various militias, Hezbollah, by terrorists, and so forth. So we're seeing continuing signs of a region that is spinning further out of control. And Haas thinks the market is underestimating the potential for instability in the Middle East and beyond. I think the markets underestimate the potential still for instability. You'd have to be a real optimist to say that the Middle East will get through the next five or ten years without considerable instability. And if that's the case, again, it will have implications for terrorism, which could spill over from the region, for refugee flows, which could affect the politics and economics of Europe, obviously for the flow of energy, for proliferation in the region, and so forth. So again, I think the future is likely to be one where the Middle East continues to be as turbulent as any part of the world, and there will be spillover because of it. Markets tend to underestimate or underweigh geopolitical risk as a principle largely because geopolitical risk tends to be uncertain by definition, and it's often hard to quantify it and plug it into models. I would simply say that as the United States begins to pull back, as alliance relationships grow a bit weaker, as international institutions are not keeping up with international challenges, the possibility of instability is likely to go up in the world. I would say that the future is likely to be far more turbulent than the recent past. So geopolitical risk and its implications for growth and markets are sure to remain top of mind. If you enjoyed the show, we hope you subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. I'm Allison Nathan. Thanks for listening to Top of Mind at Goldman Sachs, and I'll see you next time. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part or disclosed by any recipient to any other person. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the recipient. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty, express or implied, as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any recipient is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that recipient, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.